Welcome, everybody. Uh, my name is Kirsten Shepherd Barr, and I'm Knowledge Exchange Champion for the Humanities. And I'd like to welcome you all to tonight's showcase and extend a particular welcome to our external guests as well as those from within the university. Before we start, just some housekeeping notes for St. Luke's Chapel. In the event of the fire alarm sounding, it's not, it's not a scheduled test. So please leave the building via the fire exits located at the front and the back of the chapel. And even more importantly, please turn off your phones. There are many people in the KE team at Torch who have helped get us here tonight. And I want to thank you all for the organization of the 2017 KE Showcase. We're very proud of the Torch Knowledge Exchange Fellowships Program, now in its fifth year. We are very grateful to HIFE, the Higher Education Innovation Fund, for funding it, and to Professor Ian Walmsley and the KE and Impact Committee for their ongoing support. Knowledge exchange in humanities means the mutually beneficial sharing of ideas, data, experience, and expertise, and involves collaboration between researchers and external organizations or the public. There are many potential pathways and outcomes from this reciprocity that demonstrate both the enhancement of academic research and the benefits to society and the economy. The projects we shall hear about tonight demonstrate how our colleagues have interpreted the concept of co-producing a reciprocal outcome with, I'm sure you'll agree, remarkable success. The KE Fellowships are humanity's flagship scheme for supporting external partnerships. The scheme allows academics at all career levels to partner with external organizations to develop mutually beneficial projects, to enhance their own research while also contributing to the partner's needs. Its continued success signals an increasing appetite for innovative partnerships in the humanities. We're going to hear now from a selection of our current KE fellows about a few of the projects that have been happening this year. And I'm delighted that we also have here some of their external partners. Thank you so much to them for joining us this evening. These projects really would not be possible without your support and engagement. After the formal presentations, there should be time for a couple of brief questions, and these will not be filmed. We will then move on to a wine reception where you can meet and talk to the fellows, um, have a look at the posters, and so please do stay on for this um, and join us to keep talking about KE. I'm going to start right off with our first speaker. Toby Young is the Gianturco Junior Research Fellow at Lineker College, Oxford. His research looks at the relationship between philosophy and creative practice, often exploring the boundaries between popular music and classical music. As a composer and songwriter, he's written music for a wide range of musicians, including the London Symphony Orchestra, Duran Duran, Chase and Status, Jacob Banks, and the Rolling Stones. His project partner is Claire McCollin from McCollin Arts. Hi. Um, thank you. Ah, clicker. Um, first of all, an apology from Claire, who's my project partner, who's not here because she's singing Otello at the Royal Opera House, which I think is a fairly good excuse. Um, so you should have me instead. Uh, so my project, see if I'm right with, yay. My project is um, called 
uh, Transforming the Operatic Voice, and we've been working together um, with McCall Donatz, who are an opera company based in London, to explore what opera singing is versus pop singing in the broadest possible way. Um, the, the rough frame of the project was to start off by exploring the issues abstractly, then bringing them towards a workshop context, which I'll talk about in a second, and then now bringing it back to the concert hall by curating a special programme for her uh, to perform in London and Oxford. We start off with our literature review questioning what is operatic singing. We sort of all know what it is colloquially, but actually what really is it? What makes an operatic voice as opposed to a classical voice in a concert hall as opposed to a pop voice? And we found that actually there are quite a few things that, that um, are quite questionable about the, the different vocal techniques. Um, so we decided to do a, a broader literature review than we first planned, and we decided to make it into a radio show so we could play lots of examples. Um, the first thing we did is we went through a lot of X Factor recordings um, to try and see what happened. And actually, it's very interesting because seeing things like X Factor, which have mostly untrained voices, you can quite quickly work out what people are mimicking and therefore what elements they're taking away from the professional recordings. So we then went back to professional recordings and kind of tried to match those up. Um, and we saw a lot of strange things. The thing that was very interesting was that our first assumption about opera singing was that it has vibrato in. That's the main thing. You have um, the, the, the singer in the middle of the stage with a massive vibrato. You can't hear any of the words, and that is an operatic voice. Um, and of course, that's not at all what it's all about. If you listen to many pop singers, there's plenty of vibrato as well. So we sort of made a list of things we thought might be issues, um, questioned them in, in the broadest context, and then brought them towards a workshop situation. Um, there's a picture in our music faculty of us having amazing fun, as you can see. Uh, in the workshop, we worked with um, Claire, who's in the middle at the back, who's a, an opera singer, and then Heather Cancross on the left, who um, was trained classically but then worked in pop music for a long time. Um, she has a garage hit to her name, as well as uh, jazz music, who's part of the Swingle Singers in London. So she has a, a very um, broad approach to music, and we basically just sat around singing for an afternoon. We still talked about the different things that um, maybe they were thinking about, different things we could hear, the different ways that they were approaching music, and trying to piece together some of these two very different styles. Now, before this workshop, I was going to play some examples, but I've been coerced into doing a little bit of singing for you. Um, I'm not really a singer. Uh, I was a chorus scholar many years ago, but in true KE style, my project partner has given me a lesson to try and make this a little more bearable for you. So, if I start off with my interpretation of an opera voice, saying something like, um, uh, so, Ave Maria, gratia plena, etc. Something like that. That is what we think of as opera. Oh, thanks. <laughs> You thought this was a professional afternoon of presentations, but no. Um, that's what we think of as opera voice, sort of big, lots of, I mean, I instinctively had my hands for gestures, very sort of dramatic thing with lots of vibrato. Vibrato actually is a, it, it's more a practical thing than an expressive thing. In the world of opera, it's basically a, a tool to help your voice carry across the massive space in an opera house. So if I sing vibrato quietly, it, it has a very, um, a very different character, but also things like um, the, the way I use words. So one thing we discovered during the workshop is that pop singing is much more about the self, about the identity of the singer, whereas opera is much more about the, the performer as a sort of vehicle. That kind of is obvious in some ways, but we hadn't really realised the extent to which it happens. So, for example, ornamentation is much more down to the, the singer in, in pop music. The words are much more important. It's much more about expressing it, um, the, the words of the content, often about first person. 
Whereas in opera, there's a sort of emphasis on the beauty of the sound, on this exaggerated performance, often because of the, the nature of the roles of being you know, kings or uh, mythical creatures. It's very much about a very different world. And so we realise that actually a lot of it's about things like volume and personality. If you can bring the, the space towards you, whether it be through a microphone or through um, some other technology, um, bringing in some sort of ornamentation to, to show my own mark on the music, and making it about the words rather than about the sound, that helps a lot. Um, I will try one thing quickly. I don't know, is this is the microphone on? So if I get a bit closer and I try to do this a bit quieter and sing... Ave Maria, gratia plena. I mean, it's a bit piss-takey, but it does have the slightly more pop quality, doesn't it? You can hear the, the pop element in it. And all I've done is I've made it quieter, I've put some orientation in, I've made the words more focused, and tried to um, keep it about my identity. I even close my eyes, you can see me sort of trying to get into it. So things like that, we, we realise, are a massive, um, a massively important thing. So we, we're trying to explore those um, in the programme that I'm creating for, for uh, Claire. What's also interesting is, in the workshop, we realise that because this is all about the person, like the singer, um, the, the idea of a, a kind of KE project has been really questioned by what we're doing. We've had to um, work with something quite fundamental to people and change it. So through this process, as well as making the sounds very different, we've had to engage with a physical technique to be able to convert their singing from one thing to another. And that's been a very interesting project for us. How do we, especially me as a researcher, how do I engage with the terminology, the, um, the sort of personal quality of, of their singing? Um, and that's something we want to explore in a bit more detail. So we're actually putting in an AHRC bid at the moment to try and um, build a bigger project around the kind of the way it's so personal. The other thing that we discovered during this project is that actually social context is very important. Um, I sung you something that's sort of operatic in, in style, in context. And that obviously has a great deal to play with it. Um, I don't mean to assume anything, but you all strike me as karaoke-loving audience. So if we think about karaoke bars, I wouldn't really go and sing Schubert's Ave Maria. So thinking then about how we can push this further using different social contexts um, and maybe reaching different audiences, that's our next step. Um, but for now, I hope that's given you a little flavour of the work we've been doing. I look forward to some questions later. Thank you very much. Thank you, Toby. Um, as you heard just there, what, one of the phrases you'll hear a lot, actually, is we discovered. And it's a really lovely thing that happens in the KE fellowships is that you go out there to work with a partner and then you both make discoveries that you hadn't anticipated and weren't necessarily even written into your application. Um, I'm going to introduce next, uh, with great delight, my colleague Kate McLaughlin, who is a professor of English literature and Robert Wills Fellow and Tutor in English at Harris Manchester College. Her publications include Authoring War, The Literary Representation of War from the Iliad to Iraq, and as editor, The Cambridge Companion to War Writing, Kate's collaborating partner organization is the Oxford Quakers, located at St. Giles. Kate. Hello, um, I'm Kate McLaughlin, uh, and as um, Kirsten's just said, my Knowledge Exchange Fellowship on Literature and Silence um, was held at the Oxford Quaker meeting at 43 St Giles, a door that you've probably passed um, many times. 
Um, apologies also from my key liaison person at the Quaker meeting, um, Chris White. He's not singing at, Royal, at the Royal Opera House. He's um, lecturing in Crete, uh, which is almost as good. Um, so I'm at the very early stages of what I hope will um, eventually be large-scale research into literature and silence. Such early stages, in fact, that I haven't actually finished a thing that I'm working on at the moment. Um, so I'm very much um, in the mode of casting my net as widely as I can. Um, I don't yet know what form I, of output my ultimate research um, will take. I don't even know what literary periods I'm going to be concentrating on, what literary genres, even what nationalities um, of literature. So I'm, I'm at the moment very much open to everything. So being in that mode um, meant that I wanted to proceed um, with some caution. I wanted um, the fellowship to be small scale and low key. Um, and the brilliant thing is that that was eminently possible. Um, so all I applied for was an eight hour um, teaching biot, which released me from teaching half a paper to my Harris Manchester undergraduates, and that made um, all the difference. Um, so my fellowship with the Oxford Quakers, it's over now, it lasted eight weeks from January to March um, this year. Um, I attended eight Quaker meetings, which are held in silence, um, unless someone is moved to speak, and if somebody speaks, that's called ministry. Um, so I went to meetings at all the different times, they have them um, Sunday mornings early on um, Tuesdays and Thursdays, middle of the day on Wednesdays, so I could meet as many different congregations as possible. Um, and in return, in exchange, I put on four workshops exploring poetry about silence um, from the 17th century to the present. I say about silence because sometimes the poetry actually evokes or creates the silence rather than strictly being about it. So, for example, um, we looked at poems by William Shakespeare, Thomas Traherne, Alexander Pope, Christopher Smart, Mary Molyneux, who's a very interesting early Quaker woman poet, um, Alfred Lord Tennyson, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, Emily Bronte, Langston Hughes, T.S. Eliot, and E.E. E. Cummings, um, amongst many more not so well known. And we explored a wide range of feelings, from um, that feeling of being struck dumb with love, so in love that you can't get the words out, um, to being speechless with awe um, in a religious context, um, to, be, to being beyond words in religious ecstasy, um, to being speechless with grief. We talked about the difference between wise reticence and foolish cant and chatter, um, and those awkward moments when somebody ought to say something, but nobody does. And we thought about silence in sacred spaces and the silence of nature, um, and my favourite poem um, turned out to be a 19th century poem, which I didn't know before, about the special silence of the Australian forest. Only it turned out, apparently, that for people who've been there, I haven't been there, that the Australian forest isn't very silent at all. <laughs> but it can seem silent, which is itself interesting. And I also went to the breakfast and the coffees and the lunches after the meetings, which depend on what time they're held, and chatted um, informally with people about their spiritual practice and what they think happens um, during the Quaker meetings of silence. Um, and I'd say to anyone, I'm not sure this kind of constituency is here, but people considering a knowledge exchange fellowship with a religious group, rather than actually asking people about their spiritual practice, I think it is easier if you do, if you do the washing up with them, because they're much more forthcoming, I think, in those circumstances. 
Um, so what I hoped to gain, really, was just quite modest, the beginnings of an understanding um, of what silence means to people for whom it's a very large part of their spiritual lives. Um, and in return, um, I hope to give them an opportunity um, to reflect on their spiritual practice through a different medium, that is, literature. Um, and this is what happened, um, pretty much. Um, so for me, putting on the workshops, having to find the poems that we were going to talk about each week, opened up an incredibly rich theme um, of poetry about silence and evoking silence that I hadn't even begun to imagine existed. Um, so I've now submitted um, a proposal for an anthology of silence to Yale University Press. Um, an editor there is interested and is taking it to her editorial board and it's going to go to readers. So if that happens, that would be incredibly exciting because I could then build directly on the poems we looked at um, in the KE Fellowship. Um, and for the participants in the workshop, um, it seems to have been an enjoyable experience, an interesting experience, um, and an opportunity to look at their spiritual practice um, from a different angle. And the last two points on the slider, some nice things they said to me in the feedback. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Kate. Um, and the next speaker is Wes Williams. Uh, Wes's research interests include Renaissance and early modern literature. His publications include Pilgrimage and Narrative in the French Renaissance, The Undiscovered Country, and Monsters and Their Meanings. He continues to explore travel narratives. He also works on European film and in the theater as a writer and director. Wes is presenting his research together with Angharad Arnott Phillips, who is a principal partner in Storming Utopia, a project developed in partnership with the Pegasus Theater. Angharad's here, but she'd rather sit there and take questions afterwards. Um, uh, so I'll just say a few words. Um, I think this whole knowledge exchange business is great. I started uh, with it as being on, um, asked to be on a committee judging and assessing things when it was first set up. And then I thought, oh, actually, I'd quite like a bit of this myself. So I've been very fortunate to move to the position where uh, this, this, this uh, Storming Utopia project has, has been very generously funded and supported more broadly by the KE Fellowship um, sort of set up as it's developed. So Storming Utopia is both a theater piece, a show, from which you see one image there, there'll be another in a minute, and a research project. Both are grounded in work done both within and beyond the university, on islands in crisis and dreams of a better society, on the history of early modern European literature in particular, but also contemporary experience. The impetus for this phase of Storming Utopia comes from work on early modern, in other words, 16th, 17th century travel writing, both about actual and imagined journeys and places that I and also Richard Scholar, who's a partner in the project, uh, fellow at Oriel in French, have done over the past few years. Central to these has been Thomas More's Utopia, first published in 1516. But it's also rooted, this project, in the creative work and the journeys, again, both actual and imagined, taken by colleagues within contemporary Oxford, including in my partner institution, the Pegasus, and more specifically, the partner colleagues named here, and Harrod Arnott Phillips and Nomi Everall, who's a designer, um, been based at the Pegasus for the last few years. The project was initially set up as a collaboration between then Torch, Modern Languages, and the Pegasus, which is on Magdalen Road in East Oxford, a theatre which has, for the past 50 years, 
been working to foster properly innovative community engagement. And arising, arising out of earlier work that I'd done at the Pegasus, Storming Utopia involves people of all generations and from different parts of the city in an attempt to engage in discussion, argument, and also creative expression about the ancient meanings and contemporary significance of Utopia and a range of other early modern texts. In particular, and this is the storming bit, The Tempest, uh, Shakespeare's Tempest, but also Montaigne's uh, essay on cannibals, from which Shakespeare takes many themes in The Tempest, including, of course, his figure Caliban, which is a scrambled anagram of cannibal. So what we've done, basically, is um, uh, devised a show, made a show which is an intergenerational exercise in bringing together groups of people from around Oxford, as I say, from both within and beyond the university, from OX4, East Oxford, the area in which Pegasus is based, but also from uh, other parts of um, Oxford and indeed Oxfordshire. We've thought of it as a sort of exercise in practical utopianism, bringing together a motley crew, a bit like those who get washed up on Shakespeare's Island in the Tempest, and to discuss the constitution of ideal communities. So over the course of 10 weeks of rehearsals come workshops, we discussed what makes an island. My favorite definition is something surrounded by something other than itself. For instance, milk spilt on the kitchen floor. We also discussed ancient meanings and contemporary significance of utopia and of course dystopia, its opposite. People very quickly got to 1984 to um, uh, Margaret Atwood's uh, Handmaid's Tale and to a range of other modern uh, uh, texts and things which they're, Lord of the Flies, things that they're discussing either at school or beyond. And of course, given that we've been making this show over the last three months, we discussed Brexit. And indeed, as the show developed, Brexit became central to the story that we're telling. We've also, though, finally been trying to make, so throughout discussion, theatre games, writing exercises, improvisations and so on, Something that struck us a great deal and has become central to the show has been the degree to which what we call the kind of early modern echo effect. Many of the metaphors and arguments uh, which animated the Reformation, Tudor times, the English-British Civil War have returned. The great divorce, the clash of religions, parliamentary sovereignty, the tyranny of the majority. These are themes that are very much alive today in contemporary political discourse. The fact that half of the people involved in the project didn't have a vote in Brexit, and yet their lives will be determined by that vote, has become, again, a very strong part of the show, and has also become a very strong part of discussions that we've had after the show. And in fact, for me, I love making this stuff, uh, but one of the really most moving and actually sort of knowledge exchange bits of the, of the show have been the discussions afterwards with audience members where performers, um, you know, 14, 15, 16-year-old performers have been extraordinarily eloquent about the political uh, situation in which we are at the moment. And part of their eloquence has been uh, generated by their discussion of Shakespeare, Moore, Montaigne, and so on. So there's been real knowledge exchange, if you like, at a very straightforward level there. What have I learned? Well, I've learned how to work with uh, complex organizations and complex individuals um, at various different levels. I've also learned how to work with an extraordinary stage designer. There's the design of the set, which we're also going to take to Venice. I've learned how to administer things, which again are very complica complicated. Taking 25 people to Venice 
uh, to do a show just before the Biennale on an island to translate half of it into Italian so that it works for the Venetian audience. This has all been an enormous amount of work and an enormous amount of uh, challenge for somebody who spends most of their time with 16th century books. But it's also been a great joy. Um, and again, like you were saying, um, if you really want to do knowledge exchange, do the washing up, move things around on set, get involved in learning about the real practicalities of work outside uh, the library. And also, finally, bring people into the library. What part of the, uh, the last bit, um, one reason our set is like that is because it's also been enormously important for the project, but also for me, to bring uh, people who, even though they've lived their lives in Oxford, have never crossed Magdalen Bridge, have never come into the university, into our libraries, and to see what we have and to understand kind of what we do a bit more. Um, as I say, and Harrod's very happy in when we get to the uh, conversation a bit later to talk a bit more about the actual process, and so am I. Um, uh, I think I'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Wes. Um, and our next speaker is Sophie Ratcliffe, who is a fellow and tutor in English at Lady Margaret Hall and an associate professor in 19th century literature. Sophie has a particular interest in ideas of readership and the ways in which books make us feel. Her publications include On Sympathy and P.G. Woodhouse, A Life in Letters. Sophie is presenting her research together with Professor Stephen Parisian, director of the Independent Art Gallery and Museum, Compton Verney in Buckinghamshire. Thank you, Kirsten. Um, and thank you for having us here this evening. Um, I, as Kirsten said, I'm Sophie Ratcliffe, and I teach English here at the University of Oxford. And I'm here with Stephen. I'm very grateful he's not in Crete. Or the opera house. <laughs> I was going to be, but you know. And we wanted to tell you about our collaborative knowledge exchange project, Unsilencing the Library. And Unsilencing the Library is it's a detective story. It's an installation, which is hotting up. It launches on the 28th of June. And it's also a celebration of reading and of how books make us feel. And it all began with an invitation to an empty room. And given that Stephen is an architectural historian, I'm going to let him talk about the room. Um, Compton, the, the main house at Compton Verney, 18th century house. But this room uh, was one, almost the only space that had some of its original uh, fittings. The house had been uninhabited and decaying for 60 years, yet amazingly, um, these bookshelves still survive. And the clue to its reinvention in the mid-19th century um, was, as you can see in the shelving on the right, um, panels of, of fake book spines, all featuring titles by women authors. Effectively, the canon of, of what one ought to be reading around 1860. This uh, morning room on the uh, southeast side of the house was fitted up by the wife of the 17th Lord Willoughby de Brooke, the family that lived in the house until they moved out in 1921, taking everything, including the original books, with them. Um, she was a, a great champion of women's reading, uh, of, of women's education, and ultimately women's suffrage. A great figure in South Warwickshire, in terms of, of really taking the, the, the idea of the country house as patron in a completely different direction. Initially, we approached, and here she is on the left, there's a um, uh, all, the only uh, image we have of her, sadly, um, after her husband's death, 
he wasn't expecting to inherit. He was a sort of, it was a bit like a kind hearts and coronets. Virtually all the family dropped dead and then he was a vicar who wasn't expecting to inherit. He spent most of his time building a half-size frigate on the lake um, while she was a, a marvellous local patron. Um, and um, that she thereafter, after her husband's death, she founded schools, um, temperance societies, and, and lots, of, lots more of the apparatus that, that helped bring new audiences, particularly women, to reading. Um, so initially, we approached, I, I wanted to talk to the English faculty, really just about, look, there's two missing um, book, uh, book plate panels there. What are we missing? Suggest the titles. But... I was delighted when um, Sophie um, came up with a, a marvellous idea to, to do what we both want to do, and I think this is perhaps at the heart of the Knowledge Exchange um, partnership, is to bring new audiences in, both for Oxford and for us, to attract new people into reading, into museums, into culture. Um, so this will be an enormous benefit, I hope, for both of us. But Sophie will now explain so when Stephen invited me into this room and he said, so can you help us? What, what, what should have been on these panels? What should we do with these books? But also he said, and what can we do with this room? What can we do with it to bring it to life? So we, I was asked kind of, can I help to find the story behind the books and to give the room a story? Now, if we start with the dummy books, if you read George Eliot or Trollope, Imitation books in a room are usually a sign that a character's a bit of an airhead. They're a bit vulgar. But what's extraordinary about these books is if you look at the spines, all the authors on the spines are women. So these books are more, more weighty than they seem. There's a story behind these books. There's, there's Frankenstein. There's Mary Somerville, the science writer. There's Sappho. So someone was trying to make a statement that... Maybe women and walls aren't just decorative. They were trying to say something with books. And so, and, and as Stephen said, our research suggests that this was Georgiana, Lady Willoughby de Brooke. And um, she was a bit of a sort of a Bathsheba Everdeen, but things went better for her. She was also a prize sheep breeder and exhibitor and did all these things in terms of readership in the community. She was. But the problem remained these empty panels. And here, um, the Knowledge Exchange Fellowship allowed us to draw on um, two excellent, brilliant postdoctoral research assistants, Kerry Hunter and Ellie Liebeck. And they've been looking into the story of thinking what else would have been on these shelves. They went into the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust, went into the catalogues of Compton Verney's library and found other women authors that were in the library at the time. And so they have suggested what else should have been on the shelves. And an amazing bookbinder has created these beautiful tall spines. So the shelves won't be empty anymore. But what of the other six shelves? The problem remained, how are we going to curate those? And this isn't really a problem, it was an opportunity, I thought. The theory is that Georgiana was trying to make a statement with her books. She was trying to make books say something, make books be noisy, say something about books and women. So we asked other individuals and organisations what they might like to say with books. We wanted to go and find people who perhaps didn't get to say much or whose voices weren't being heard enough. And we also wanted to hear about some ideas that need to be talked about more. So we chose, we asked a diverse selection of guest curators, and these are going to change every year. And we asked them to each to take a shelf. In terms of ideas that need to be heard, we've asked this year, we've asked Emma Watson, 
Emma Watson, um, to sh- and she's agreed to share her, her sh- books on her shared shelf. She has a feminist book reading club, so her, sh- her books are going on one shelf. There'll be bookmarks in each of the books on the shelves and also web resources, so you can go into the room and tap, why does Emma Watson like this book? We've asked Alice Fowler, who writes for The Guardian about the environment, and she's chosen a beautiful selection of books about gender and about the environment. We've asked Real at the Charity about mental health and reading. And we've asked Margot Jefferson, whose wonderful memoir, Negro Land, has been winning prizes this year, and she's given us an amazing selection of books about race. In terms of people, we've gone to the local school at Kyneton that Georgiana was a patron of, and we've got um, some teenagers from there recommending books that matter to them. And for me, perhaps the most moving part of the knowledge exchange, it's all been so much fun, the most extraordinary, possibly the most extraordinary moment of my academic life was to go into um, a prison, which I'd never been into a prison before, and to go into the library. There's an amazing charity called Prison Reading Groups, and they hold reading groups all over the UK. And they've helped us to ask men and women in prisons what what they read and what books mean to them. And so we've received about 100 nominations from men and women in prisons about the books that matter to them, and those two are going on the shelves. And um, it was extraordinary. I'm very interested in how books make us feel. It's very interesting going into a prison and the different quality walking through the corridors when you went into the library and how different that felt. Um, As you can see, it's quite a tentacular project. It's quite elaborate. It's very, very exciting. It's been a huge privilege to be involved with it. And I think that's, that's just what has meant the most to me, is about all the amazing people I've met and the way, all the directions it's going in. And, it, and it's been wonderful for us, again, guaranteeing new audiences, taking us in different ways, helping to break up partnerships, not just for us, but also for Oxford. One thing that's instantly come out of this uh, is a, a visit by um, pupils from Kyneton School, which is a, a big area of rural deprivation. Lots of a number of the, the students that the headmistress has selected are, are not people who sit in the library who read books, but they are coming to visit Lady Margaret Hall. So already, you know, to see that now Oxford is not a scary, uh, forbidding place. So brokering these other partnerships just helps us get get, get forward and really helps us appeal to all sorts of communities with, you know, who otherwise wouldn't, a bit like we're saying with, with Oxford before, wouldn't darken our doors. So it's been wonderful for us and will continue to be as the years develop. Thank you. Thank you so much, um, Sophie and Stephen, and I'm deeply sorry about the geographical lapse. Um, I'd like to introduce next Matthew Reza, who is a postdoctoral research assistant for the project Cultures on the Move, Italy and the USA, where he researches the migration of oral and written narratives, particularly the fairy tale, from Italy to the US during the 20th century. He's also an Italian language tutor and sessional lecturer and the events coordinator for the research network Italian Studies at Oxford. He has published on Italian fantastic literature, Italian-American studies, and utopian narratives. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Kirsten. Um, well, the first thing I should like to say is um, this project is not, in fact, a full key fellowship project. This is merely a pilot project, so I'm very grateful to be able to present this, also to see what kind of feedback I get from this afternoon um, for what I'm doing. So the project is... 
um, a project which uh, involves me talking to the Italian community in Britain um, and in short to see what kind of stories there may be. Um, the history or the idea behind this project is that uh, whilst oral cultures exist pretty much all over the world and have done for centuries, uh, the additional dimension is that in the 19th centuries and the 20th centuries, Italians by the million emigrate uh, to uh, the, north, uh, the northern United States and to South America and all over Europe and to Britain. So what I want to see is, do stories uh, migrate with migrants uh, to Britain? Do they stay? Do they evolve? Have they disappeared? In what way can they be recalled? So in essence, the central question is, uh, do Italians and British Italians and British citizens with Italian heritage, so first generation, second generation, third generation, um, can they recall any stories? And if so, tell me, what are they? And so it's essentially a data gathering collection of stories. And the, whilst that might be a kind of one-way um, mechanism, the idea is that I would collect them, that I put them onto uh, Italian studies at, at Oxford website. I invite the participants to feedback and say, I remember this story, that was mine, or I see that one, my grandmother told me this one many years ago, um, to see what kind of, um, uh, any heritage, what heritage exists, how we can understand the, the changing face of storytelling, um, how it has evolved, how it's been influenced by, let's say, the literatures that migrants have read or second generations have read and so forth. Um, now, so rather than simply uh, going to schools and asking Italians of, uh, who are 16, 17, 18 to go and essentially become budding young folklorists, which is what I tended to do, um, I was told, no, unfortunately, you can't do that. There are restrictions on how um, you can uh, use uh, young people. So what the ethics committee said, no, 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 but in the way that this is a really good question, not just because I'm, use, I'm outsourcing my work, which is essentially the way it may have appeared, but rather that um, the way in which they would talk to their relatives might, let's say, um, bring up painful memories, that that's the history of the family which goes with that story, and that therefore you have to be careful about uh, ex making them expose uh, their family, the rest of you know, themselves, to something which may be, for them, personally traumatic. So you have to give them the option of uh, disclosing as much or as little as they want and not feeling pressured to go out and essentially ask the wrong questions. Uh, so what the ethics committee suggested, which by the way they've cleared the project as of about two days ago, so I'm, very, I'm now clean, I'm green-lighted to actually go and do this, um, is to set up an online questionnaire um, to say, well, you know, fill in some additional details and then as many times as you want, fill in, copy-paste some word if you want, the story that you can recall, add all the details you want, and I can work with that. Um, so that's the, the basic premise of how the story would work, sorry, how the project would work. Um, and I would be starting with Bedford, which is, uh, particularly in the post-war years, has been a, a particularly hot, um, a sort of high concentration of Italian migrants who've come from Britain. Uh, so I've made contact with certain schools, some have completely ignored me, so I said yes, of course. The timing isn't great for the exam periods, so GCSEs and A-levels, but um, local communities uh, and uh, language centres have said yes, of course, let's, uh, let's talk. So uh, the idea for the future will be to go into Bedford, start discussing uh, the project, give out the link, see what comes through, and see if there's actually material to lead into a larger project, a bigger knowledge exchange project sometime in the future. So I welcome any suggestions, any bright ideas of what we could do in the future, things to avoid, things to say, uh, and I look forward to any questions you might have afterwards. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Matt. And, um I'm delighted to introduce next uh, Armand Dancourt, who is an associate professor of classics and fellow of Jesus College, Oxford. 
In 2011, he published a monograph on The Greeks and the New, Novelty in Ancient Greek Imagination and Experience with Cambridge University Press. And his main research area since then has been ancient Greek music. Formerly a professional cellist, he has written numerous articles about the interface of classical scholarship with ancient music and its practical realities, and is currently writing a book on the subject. His professional collaboration with scholars and musicians from across the world led to a concert in the British Museum in July 2016 of the first research-led performance of items of ancient Greek music using ancient scores and replica instruments. Armand's collaborating partners are the Gardenitsa Theatre of Lublin in Poland and the Choir of Keys College, Cambridge. Thank you very much. Um, um, so, this is something of a gift for knowledge exchange, really, an archaeological detective story to recreate the music of an ancient Greek chorus. Now, if you ask people what do we know about ancient Greek music, very, very knowledgeable people will tell you that we know nothing. It's not the case. Um, one of the things that um, I've been working on are the documents of ancient Greek music, of which there are a few dozen with notation. But they've been um, presented in an extremely technical way. So people don't realize it's actually possible to read and even to hear and play some of the music. And most of it goes back to the second century AD. There's one large inscription in Delphi from the first century BC. But of course, what people want to know is what about the choruses of the 5th century BC, where from, from all the early poetry we read in, in Greek, from Homer all the way through to Euripides, so from, from roughly 750 to um, 400 BC, all that poetry, Homer, Sappho, Pindar, was sung to music. And we can get some sense of that music. What I decided to do was to throw a little bombshell into the professional academic community and recreate something from a papyrus which is in um, Vienna, two inches square, which has what we would call a few bars of the music of a chorus of Euripides from 408 BC. So there it is on the top left. Um, and on the right we have a transcription of the words and the music, the little notes with arrows up, are quarter tones. And if you just sing what's there, you get a very gappy and rather difficult piece of music. Now, textual criticism for the classics has always been about filling in the gaps of the words. So I thought it was time someone tried to fill in the gaps in the music. In fact, there's a lot of information about the scale systems, we know what mode this was in, we know what notes would have been used. And I started to work at the various principles. So this is the knowledge bit of the knowledge exchange. Here's going to be a bit of knowledge using roughly a dozen different principles to help to recompose this fragment and then go on and recompose the whole um, chorus. So here, we have what I came up with. The bits in the red lined boxes are what we can get straight off the papyrus. 
and the rest of it is uh, my own reconstruction. Uh, to show you one of the principles, if one looks at this box here, we have a word in Greek which means I beseech, and we have the opening of that word going up. And luckily we've got the end of that word here on a different register. So, two registers, which is how they compose, they tended to compose in clusters. We can therefore work out that, that would have probably been and so on. So various principles that we find that we can use to, to reconstruct the sound. Now, what about the pitch? What about the instrumentation? These notes, which are in red, are indications of an aulos. This was the double pipe that accompanied ancient choruses. And uh, one of my partners is the wonderful piper Barnaby Brown, who has worked with reconstructed. There are about five um, pipes which come from the ancient world, relics, and they've been reconstructed with painstaking accuracy by the European Music Archaeology Project, and Barnaby is part of that. And he, ha he has worked out what sounds can be made at what pitch and so on. So last December, the first ever chorus from, an ancient, from the ancient world was sung and played to the accompaniment of Barnaby on the Aulos by a few students, um, three. I mean, uh, we're going to do a much bigger one in July in the Ashmolean with a full complement of singers, uh, both bass and high, so there would have been boys as well as men's voices. But these are men's voices singing a chorus of this Euripides as I've, as I've reconstructed it. Um, and one of the things we're told by an ancient commentator was at one stage, for effect, they stopped singing and just declaimed some words. And the, ex the knowledge exchange that comes out of hearing this is extraordinary because I've just come from Poland actually, where for the last five days the guys in Nietzsche Theatre have been working with this score. And they had come up with the idea on their own that you'd have a more dramatic effect if some bits were spoken. And so it was really interesting to be able to confirm that that's what we're actually told. So let's hear this if we can. Kuadakusisumbalei, kodeo di 
I should have given you the context of that. Um, the Orestes of Euripides is when Orestes, having killed his mother, Clytemnestra, is haunted by her furies. And in this first chorus, what you have is a chorus who are actually women. So you'll have, although they were played by men in ancient Greece, the lower, the higher as well as the lower voices, uh, lamenting him and shouting, alas, for your troubles. That's the pale mocktaunt. So that's what was going on. Thank you. That's absolutely revelatory. Thank you. Um, well, we've been hearing some fantastic, uh, fantastic accounts of projects in, in the works, uh, knowledge exchange in action, and we're going to finish. Unfortunately, um, Jonathan Prague can't actually be here today, but Andrew Fairweather Tall is going to read his project description. Let me tell you about Jonathan. He's Associate Professor of Ancient History in the Faculty of Classics, Fellow of Merton College, and Director of the I Sicily Project. He teaches Roman history and undertakes research on ancient Sicily, the Roman Republic, and Greek and Latin epigraphy. I hope I got that right. Jonathan's partner organization is the Liceo Artistico Statale of Catania in Sicily, where he collaborates with Professore Gaetano La Rosa and Professore Orazio Licandro. Thank you, and uh, please, um, I'm reading this, um, no uh, laughter at my um, Italian pronunciation <laughs> while we're doing this. So, um, I thought I'd just say a little bit about Jonathan's um, I Sicily, which is the um, overarching project. It's a heritage project um, to develop um, digital tools for research on the languages and history and culture of ancient Sicily and the ancient Mediterranean. Of course, as you'll all know, um, Oxford's record in developing digital humanities research is second to none. But it's not, however, digitisation per se that enhances the research he wants to undertake. Rather, it is the way in which digital tools enable the engagement of multiple stake local stakeholders. Above all, with the museums and the communities which he hopes will curate the materials. So the greatest challenge for the long-term success of the ISSB project is, uh, and therefore his research, is the level of local collaboration and participation required. So over recent months, classes from the Liceo Artistico Statale, M.M. Lazzaro of Cantania, have each been spending a week working with teachers from the school and staff of the Museo Civico Castello Rossino of Catania. The students have spent time in the museum stores recording the Greek and Latin inscriptions and working with a conservator cleaning the inscriptions and other objects in the collections. The school focuses on art in all, form, all forms, including digital media, 
and one group of students undertook photographic recording of the materials. As part of the work, they prepared this short video compilation recording, the experience of two of the classes in the museum. We hope it offers a flavour of their interests and enthusiasm, as well as of the unique environment of the museums and its collections. And I hope it will now work. Thank you.